and it is on uh, the book of Jonah. So I'm glad you're here for this. I think, I'm, I think it's going to be really good. I think you're going to be excited to work through what has really been a familiar text. A lot of people know the story of Jonah. You don't have to have ever been in church in your life to understand this idea that there was this prophet who ran, and then there was a storm, and there was a whale, and then uh, something happened. I don't know. But everybody kind of knows that much about Jonah at least. And with so many things that are so familiar, what we end up doing is we don't ever go deeper in them because we think we kind of already got it. So it's a lot of fun for me, and I hope it's a lot of fun for you, that we're going to dive deeper into Jonah and see really what is it that's going on here. What we're going to see, the reason it's called Relentless, is we're going to see a relentless God whose relentless love for us uh, is really something that we cannot outrun. So, all of that said, we are going to also have uh, a devotional that goes with it. So it looks like this. And so this is free and available to you. Today, if you go on Amazon.com, you can get the ebook version of this for free. Uh, you would type in Jonah devotional in the, the little search box. It'll be the first one up. Or uh, you can put my name in. If you know what that is, you feel free and you, it should be the first thing that comes up. And so you can get the ebook for free. If you want a paper copy, you're welcome to buy it. That's up to you. Um, we are going to put it on Facebook every single day. So for day one of the devotional, it'll be on the Covenant Facebook. So if you haven't liked that, you can like that. And then at 6 a.m. every single morning that there's a devotional, it will be there for you. And so like we said the last time we did this, if you ever feel guilty about starting your day on Facebook, now you don't have to, right? Okay. So that'll be out there for you on Facebook every day. If you are uh, opposed to Facebook, you don't like Amazon, you refuse to read paper books, but you really love PDFs, like I don't care. We want to get it to you any way possible. So if you just email me, just send it to me, Kyle. I'll send it to you. Uh, We want you to have access to it. We want you to uh, be enriched by um, this idea that we're going to spend 30 days in the book of Jonah. But it's not just a Sunday thing. We're going to spend 30 days and just sort sort of rest in it and sort of saturate in it. And hopefully we all get the same picture out of it. So that's all there and available to you. I hope that made some sense. I think it did. And so to get started, let's read chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. It says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed to Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying that fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. They threw cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah, who had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell asleep in a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. The sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who's responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us who was responsible for making all this trouble for us. What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And he answered, I am a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid, and they said to him, What is it that you've done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Okay. That's a pretty uh, exciting beginning to the narrative. The first thing we see, the first phrase in the narrative is the word of the Lord. That's a technical Hebrew phrase that literally is describing the calling and the functioning of the prophet. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. It tells us who Jonah is. He's a prophet. He hears directly from God and he takes that revelation. And his job, a prophet's job, is to be a truth teller and mouthpiece. 
we think of prophecy, we always think of, um, you know, telling the future. Because biblically, we see prophets who will tell the future. Because God has given them something to say, and so he's going to go, hey, this is about to happen. And we go, oh, so, oh, so a prophet is someone who tells the future. No, a prophet is someone who tells the truth and is a mouthpiece for something greater. It just so happens that biblically, so often, God uses prophets to lay out what's coming. So we see really quickly, Jonah is a prophet. And he gets a clear call. The first word in verse 2 says, go. Go. Not maybe, not hey, if you're not busy, it's just really clear. But what we don't see and what we don't get unless we understand the context is that this is a heavy call. Nineveh is an intimidating city. Nineveh is, Nineveh is uh, New York size with Las Vegas uh, reputation. Nineveh was a violent place. It was uh, in Assyria known for its cruelty and its violence, massacres. It wasn't a really welcoming place. And it was huge. At its height of its powers, it had 100-foot high walls surrounding it. 100-foot high walls with 1,500 guard towers. Remember, in, in the day, cities were, were surrounded by walls. It was their protection. It was their way of, of creating security. Nineveh was among the greatest ever of these places. It was this huge, broad, intimidating place that once you entered those walls, you felt no safer because of the violence of the place and the reputation of the place preceded it. And so in verse 3, it says, but Jonah ran away. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. It said, go. That's verse 1, verse 2. Verse 3 says, but Jonah ran away from the city not what it says. It says, but Jonah ran away from the Lord. Jonah ran away from the Lord. It wasn't simple disobedience. What we see immediately is Jonah has almost resigned his identity in this move. Jonah is resigning his identity. Jonah is resigning his calling. Jonah is resigning his core purpose. When the word of the Lord comes to the prophet, the prophet does what the word of the Lord says to do. And for Jonah to go the opposite direction is not simple disobedience. It's Jonah saying, I don't want to do what you want me to do. I don't want to be who you call me to be. And I think so often when we, uh, when we think of disobedience, we think of it as, as uh, related to behavior. Right? It's how we see kids. Kids disobedient, didn't make bed, disobedient. And yet if we look at scripture and then if we really are careful, we look at our own lives and the way that that we behave, the way that our children behave towards us, what we come to find out looking at Jonah is disobedience is a rejection of God, not of his desired behavior for us. Disobedience is a rejection of God, not of his desired behavior for us. The same is true of, of a child who disobeys their parent. The child is being disobedient of the parent, not of the parent's desired behavior. Every single time disobedience comes, disobedience says, I don't trust you. And so Jonah walks away from God. He goes the other direction. He goes, "Uh uh-uh, not for me. He bails. Is he insecure? Is he seeking a new identity? What is he doing? Ernest Becker is a Pulitzer-winning author of The Denial of Death. He's a therapist, he's a scholar, and an atheist. Ernest Becker says, the quintessential problem of modern people is there certainty that there is something wrong with them? Someone who has no belief in God, believes there is no God, says the quintessential problem with modern people is our core belief that there is something wrong with me. 
those of us who are followers of Christ would go, yeah, there's a reason he senses that. Because there is something wrong with me at, at my core. There, the sin thing has entered into the equation and there's something that needs to be rectified. There is something wrong. There's something broken. The world uses words like shame and guilt and inadequacy. Becker never uses the word sin. But that's exactly what he describes. Since an unpopular term or an unpopular idea in our culture, you actually, as a young preacher, get told not to use the word very often. Try not to say sin. People don't like to be sitting in church and hear about sin. So they say, use other words. Use struggles or, or trials, but, but don't say sin. Nobody wants to know that they have sin. Nobody wants to come into church and be confronted with the idea that we have sin. People want to be told that it's all going to be okay and we all struggle and hey, it's okay. Soren Kierkegaard in Sickness Under Death said, sin is the despair of seeking self before God. And then the despair of trying to be oneself without God. He breaks sin into this really interesting concept. Sin is the despair of seeking self before God. And then the despair of then trying to be oneself without God. So, so look at Jonah. This is the whole book of Jonah summed up. He seeks his self before God. God has a plan for him, a desire for him. And Jonah says, no, I think I'm going to do this other thing. So he puts himself first. And then the rest of the book, the rest of the next four weeks, spoiler, is going to be Jonah's despair of trying to live that self-first life. Jonah is almost trying to separate his identity from his creator. I was thinking about this, kind of how this would look in our culture. What would that be? It's as if uh, my eight-year-old, as if Bella said, you know what? I don't want to be Burkholder. Don't want to be anything like that. Don't like the attachment, don't like the reputation. I don't want to be associated with you anymore. Changing my name. And she picks some strange name. She decides she wants to be, you know, Bella Beyonce or who knows, right? It's a better name. But so she has this existential crisis and she says, I'm not going to be Burkholder anymore. I'm changing my name. Does it change reality at all? Like, does it change her DNA? Does it change her wiring? Does it change her cultural upbringing? Does it change the thing that's, that's wound into her? Does it change any of who she is other than something on a piece of paper? This is what Jonah is, is doing. Is Jonah is, is walking away from something, but it, it doesn't actually change who he is. His disobedience doesn't rewire his life. It doesn't reset his history. It doesn't re-identify him in the eyes of God. All it does is let him get further away from where he was supposed to be in the first place. Jonah runs and despair soon follows. What's really interesting to me is why did he run? Why did he run? In chapter 4, spoilers everywhere, weeks away from now, Jonah's going to look at God and say, I knew you would spare them. So what's going to happen, right? Jonah runs from God, storm comes, he's thrown overboard, he's going to get swallowed by a great fish, whale, sea monster. We'll get into that. He's spit out on dry land, wants to dry land. He's going to go into Nineveh, preach, and then God is going to relent and spare the people of Nineveh. That's what's about to happen. And Jonah looks at God in chapter 4 and he says, I knew you would do it. I knew you'd spare them. Which is instructive if we're reading chapter 1 to go, why wouldn't Jonah do what God asked him to do? We get the idea that Jonah wasn't afraid of failure, but, but success. Jonah wasn't afraid of failure like, I can't take on Nineveh. Maybe Jonah was afraid of success the whole time. 
Like maybe Jonah wanted the dirty Ninevites destroyed. Maybe Jonah wasn't too cowardly to go and do what God had called him to do. Maybe Jonah was too prideful. Self-righteousness and pride are the enemy of grace. Self-righteousness and pride are the enemy of grace. And it's possible that Jonah, the prophet of the Lord himself, living the right life in the right place, doing the right thing just as God wants him to do. It's, it's possible that Jonah gets this call to go and see to this people, this unjust people, this violent people, this dirty people, and Jonah goes, oh, really? Them? Anytime someone mentions self-righteousness, I squirm a little. Because on the outside, I want to say, I'm glad I'm not self-righteous, you know? Self-righteousness is like, like spinach in your teeth. You're the last one to know about it, right? Everybody knows before you. And we all own that on some level, if it's us. Self-righteousness self-righteous manifests itself in so many different ways. People who are particularly religious look down on people who aren't, or people of one religion look down on people of another. People of one race look down on people of the other. People of one education, well, I have a lot of education. I look down on those who don't have any, or I don't have that much, so I look down on those who do and think they're so special because they do. People who suffer look down on those who have suffered less. People who haven't suffered wonder what's wrong with the people who suffered more. The rich look down on the poor. The poor resent the rich. What we learn is our way to affirm ourselves is through comparison. That everyone is superior to someone else, we just have to find the right lens. And everyone can compare ourselves to someone else, and in doing so, can find the right way to feel better about our lives. There is not a human being alive that hasn't said some, some concept of the phrase, at least I'm not like blank. Or at least I didn't, whatever. Comparison is our great way to make ourselves feel better about everything. Teddy Roosevelt said, comparison is the thief of joy. I was trying to figure out what he, what he exactly meant by that. And I would say comparison probably either leads to one of two things, and they're both errors. Comparison either leads to self-love, which is to say, compare myself to these people and now look how good I am, which is sinful. Or it leads to self-loathing. I compare myself to those people and now look at me. I'm, I'm nothing, which is sinful, because God doesn't say that about you either. And this is the great issue of our day when we can scroll through Facebook and see everybody else's highlight reel of their life and go, well, I'm not not as good as them. I don't have what they have, or I'm not, I'm not in a place my marriage never looked that good. Without any context, without any backstory, without anything, we can go and compare ourselves any which way we want in order to make ourselves feel whatever we want to feel. Jonah, in pride and self-righteousness, heads the opposite direction from the Ninevites. He gets on a boat to Tarshish. I don't actually think he cares where he's going. I don't know this. The Bible doesn't say this. I don't think he cares where he's going as long as it isn't towards Nineveh. Paul Mackerel, an author, says Tarshish is the place of disobedient dreams. He calls it the place of disobedient dreams. I think it's a beautiful description. What does it mean? 
Let's say your doctor puts you on a diet, strict diet. I don't know how strict we can be. Uh, only raw foods, no carbs, right? Whole food, healthy food, no carb, no sugar, nothing artificial. That's your new diet. And if that was your new diet, okay, you could do that. You could make that happen if you had to. There's no shortage of places, though, to ruin it. Like, let's say you lived here and you worked on the other side of the university, just past the football stadium, just over the highway, whatever. To get from here to there, you have to pass like 416 places where you're going to screw up your diet, right? There's not a single place you can stop or even look without ruining everything. There's no shortage of paths to disobedience in that idea. That if I have this diet and I need to go from here to there every day, every single place I look is a potential path for disobedience to what the doctor has asked me to do. You find yourself driving down Wooster and you go, you know, wouldn't that be nice though? I mean, it's just one. I don't think I've ever had a taco wrapped in a piece of fried chicken before. <laughs> have you seen that? You can go to Taco Bell and get a taco that the shell is just a piece of fried chicken. They don't even have a shell anymore. It's just fry, fry something. You could do that. And you're driving down with this great idea and you're going, you know, but I've never had one of those. Just one a day. It's fine. There are no shortage of paths to disobedience. For a heart running from God, what we see in Jonah, what we see in our own lives, what we see in our worst days, what we see in our train wrecks, what we see in our rearview mirror, and what some of us see in our current day, for a heart running from God, there's always a ship in the harbor that's willing to take you where you want to go. There's always a ship in the harbor willing to take you where you want to go. We use that term harbor, harboring thoughts, harboring doubts. Harboring desires, harboring resentments. We harbor things, don't we? We put them away in a safe spot. That's what a harbor is. You, put, you bring the boat into harbor, it's safe there. And you and I, we keep these things and we harbor them in a place where we can keep, just in case, just in case I need that. If you harbor lustful thoughts, you will find a willing partner eventually. If you harbor resentment, you will come across a stone to throw. In the storms of stress, when the storm comes, where do you go? You put your boat into the harbor. When the storms of life come, where do we go? We often go into the harbors, and what's waiting for us in the harbor is all of these things that make the stress feel just a little less stressful. And so we pick our ship and we sail the ship of disobedient dreams. There's this phrase, there's leadership books, and uh, it's kind of apocryphal, burn the ships. Have you ever heard, anybody heard this phrase, you burn the ships? The idea is, is in 1519, this uh, Spanish conquistador landed in Mexico. And the, the story goes that as his men disembarked the ships, they turned around and burned them. Which is to say, no retreat, no going back. We're here. We will win or we will die. And historically, you look it up and you do a little bit of research, and he didn't actually burn the ships. So it's kind of a letdown when there's like, best-selling leadership book, burn the ships. And you go, what a great concept, except it's totally deflating because they never burned anything. 
what they did is they, they did, you know, functionally do that in a sense. They took the, the materials and they created camps and they took, they took everything off the ships basically that was usable. Except for the one ship that they were going to load down with treasure and send back to Spain. But for every man that got off the boat, there was no way to get back on and go anywhere. They were, they were hosed in that sense. The idea, though, is instructive for us. Like, what would it mean to go into the harbor of your disobedient dreams and burn those ships? An example of this, I was in college and a friend of mine came over to my apartment. You know, it's 1 a.m. What am I doing at 1 a.m.? I'm eating chicken wings, right? Let's see how many weeks in a row we can mention that. It's 1 a.m. and he knocks on my door and he goes, I'm done. And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. And he's like, I'm done. And he takes a Ziploc bag out of his pocket and it's got this silver, I don't know, like a little square rectangle looking thing. And he puts it on my kitchen counter and he pulls a hammer out and he starts smashing this thing in front of me. And he goes, there, you keep it. And he leaves. And I have no idea what he's done except dent my counter and make me lose my deposit. And so I'm looking at, he's, the, he's gone. There's this smashed up piece of metal on my countertop. And I eventually I'm like, hey, what was that? What did you do? He said, oh, well, that was my, my card from my computer that gets me on the internet. He said, one time too many for me. Never again. He goes, so I literally pulled the card out of my computer that allows my computer to go on the internet. I now have a really, really, really expensive word processor. I took that to your house and I smashed it. So that won't be my problem anymore. That won't be my access point. He burned the ships. He reached a point where he said, I keep this in the harbor when I need it. And I can't do that anymore. And so for us, we look at Jonah and we say, everybody can find the ship to wherever they want to go whenever they need it. What are the ships in our lives? The avenues we keep open, the door we leave just cracked, just in case. What are those things? How do we undo our access to these points? The reality is we don't need safety from our sin in the harbor. What we actually need is a storm. Jonah's pride sends him running, which at first seems like no problem. Well, it's interesting to me that Jonah runs and his disobedience doesn't result in immediate pain. It would have been way easier, the story would have been shorter, if Jonah goes the other way, gets on the ship to Tarshish, and, and God strikes him with lightning and it's just over. Like, oh, disobedience equals that's not good. What we find instead is Jonah gets on the boat and we find him peacefully sleeping. Even as the storm rolls in, Jonah is at peace. Jonah has seemed to have found peace in his pride. But is that possible? Anybody heard of uh, Fukushima in Japan? This area in Japan, north of Tokyo, a few years ago there was an earthquake. And Fukushima is the home of, of the, a large uh, nuclear facility, one of the biggest nuclear power plants in Japan. And they're, they're built to withstand earthquakes. They're built to, with, I mean, they have generators and backup power and all kinds of things because a nuclear reactor is kind of sort of a dangerous thing heard of Chernobyl or you've heard of Three Mile Island or when a nuclear reactor melts down, it's, it's really, really, really bad. And so they have all these backup systems in place. And in well, 2012, 2013, whenever it was, it seems like it was a while back, there's an earthquake. Earthquake off the coast of Japan and it shakes in Fukushima. The power goes out and yet the generators kick on. And so everybody's okay. We're checking all the systems. The core is not going to melt down. Everybody's going to be fine. Little did they know, off the coast, a tsunami starts to build. 
The tsunami starts to grow and grow, then the tsunami warnings go off, and so people had to higher ground, but the, the people with the nuclear plant, they bunker down because they're ready for this, right? They, they built a nuclear plant on the Japanese coast in a seismic region. They know what's coming. What they didn't do, um, they didn't properly build up the seawall high enough, and so as the tsunami comes in, it crashes into the power plant, which you go, well, they have their generators, they're fine, but they left the generators in the basement, so that's sort of a problem. So the generators get swamped with seawater, they all cut off, the whole thing becomes a disaster. The core temperatures start rising, and what you get is basically nuclear meltdown. Things start exploding, radiation starts leaking everywhere, it's still leaking into the ocean today, years later. They can't go back in and fix it because the radiation levels are so high that, that humans couldn't exist in there. But they've sent robots, like, like pieces of metal, right? They send these robots in with cameras on them to at least get a picture and go, what's wrong with the, the thing so we can fix it? We just need to know how to fix this and seal this and contain this so that we can, basically what their plan is, is to build a half trillion dollar uh, concrete cube over the whole site and be done with it. But they can't do it because it's leaking water from underneath and it's radiated water into the ocean. Sort of a minor problem. So they send these cameras in on these robots to see if we can just find the problem, we can fix it. And within two, three, four minutes, the cameras and the robots die. Like they malfunction. The radiation is so high that a robot can't even go in. The scientists working on this problem have said, A, we don't currently have a solution that we have uh, invented. Like it doesn't exist. We, we can imagine one, but we haven't invented that technology yet. And B, the radiation levels are so high that we can't even send a robot in to know what the problem is. No repair can be done. It's simply too dangerous. Radiation has overtaken the site. Some people will go, well, what happened if they just sent a person in? Like if some hero wanted to go in and take a camera and just get a little bit of footage. There are areas of the plant where you could still get a human in. Some levels, some rooms, they could go in, and actually they wouldn't feel any acute pain. With radiation, you feel no acute pain in the moment. Radiation doesn't hurt. What they've learned and what we learned at Nagasaki and what we, we, over the history, we've learned that radiation is a problem. Nuclear, nuclear radiation isn't stabbing pain, but it's this inside-out unraveling that starts in your body. So the people that were in the plant when the meltdown happened, when this disaster happened, they have this slow unraveling from the inside out as they were exposed to way too much radiation. Radiation is this inside-out unraveling, and so they don't know how to fix this problem. I don't have a resolution to the story because they can't get someone in knowing that if they went in the radiation, though it wouldn't feel pain in the moment, the person would come out and be a ghost in days. Pride is that for us. The same sin that causes Jonah to run is soul radiation. Pride is soul radiation. Pride is so dangerous because it convinces us we're not sinful. The inside out unravels. Pride doesn't hurt. Pride isn't stubbing your toe. Pride, pride isn't getting in a, a drunk driving accident. Pride, pride is not something that you're going to immediately go, oh, that was a mistake. Pride is this slow internal unraveling. It destroys humility in us and it destroys our grace for others. This self-righteousness, this pride that Jonah walks away from God in is the same thing that we sometimes unknowingly walk in ourselves. And when you walk in pride and when you walk in self-righteousness, you walk step by step into a nuclear meltdown. And eventually you feel the pain of that. You don't feel it at first, but eventually you feel the pain. 
which is sometimes how God pursues us, isn't it? Pain always shows up eventually. The storm always comes, but why? And say, because God is relentless. God allows storms to help us see who we really are. God allows storms to help us see who we really are. When I first drove up here last July with a friend and we were moving in, we lived in the butler's house for, I don't know, I want to say a couple days, but they'll rightly remember it was, it was a whole lot more weeks than that. And my friend that drove up from Texas with me, we're sitting in, in their kitchen and, and he has a, a young daughter and I have these two daughters and, and Tim says to us, you know, the thing I always prayed for is my daughters would get their hearts broken early. That's what we pray for is, is that, you know, what, get the heart broken early, get the pain early, learn the lesson early when the consequences are, are lower, when the, when the pain is going to be lesser. But the longer they wait, the greater the stakes. I thought that was, one, sage advice, but two, really interesting. That, that a relentless love of a father would look at his child and say, I want, I want her to feel pain. I, I want it to just be pain that's going to help prevent the greater pain. Sometimes God allows storms to help us see who we really are, to help us realize that we're dependent creatures, that we need him that we're not self-sufficient, that we don't have it all together. Sometimes God wants the house of cards to crumble. And in the storm, then we can, we can cry out. In the storm, we finally relent our pride. We finally look at ourselves for who we really are. We see a, a true picture of our, of our lives. And we go, okay, you're right. We've been running from who we truly are. It finally catches up to us. We run, though. Like Jonah, we run. Sometimes we don't care where we run. We pick a boat in the harbor and we take it. Sex, status, career, prestige, money, significance, pleasure, entertainment. The storm comes though. No matter how far we run, the storm will come and the storm will expose. A relentless God never gives up on us. The hardship exposes our need and our dependence, how out of control we actually are. What kind of God is this? What kind of God is it, you might rightly ask, that would send relentless storms upon his children? Sounds like a loving father kind of God. A God who yearns for you to know your true condition so he might lead you to the true remedy. God yearns for you to know your true condition so that he might lead you to your true remedy. And sometimes the only way we find that is in the storm. The only way we see what's truly in us is when we are exposed for what is really in us. Self-diagnosis doesn't often work very well, does it? You go to a medical doctor and they go, oh, yeah, you're treating your throat because you have a cough, but we call that bronchitis and it's happening here. Oh, yeah, but I was just taking cough drops. Like, well, that's what you thought it was, but let me, let me show you, let me diagnose, let me show you deeper, let me show you inside. Thought I had migraines. No, it's something greater. I thought, you know, so often we do this. God yearns for you to know your true condition because only when you know your true condition can the true remedy be found. This is not relentless anger or wrath. This is the storm that is the picture of the love of God. The storm is a picture of God's relentless love. It saves us from what we can't see. This is the gospel, right? The gospel is this picture of a relentless God that in our pain and in our sin, we cry out and he sends Jesus. Jesus endures the storm on our behalf. He suffers on our behalf. He sacrificially gives his life on our behalf. 
to save us from the punishment of our wrongs. And yet the storm, though it consumes Jesus, what we hear in the Easter season, though death might consume him, it cannot keep him. Jesus conquers death, is raised to life, life is found again in Jesus. And what we know then watching the life of Jonah, the story of Jonah, what we know seeing the story of Christ, the storm is sent from a loving father. We're all in one. Some of us are in tornado warning type of storms, and some of us are in just kind of a perpetual drizzle. Some of us are in the sun, and we're like, hey, I'm not in a storm. Get off my lawn. I'm good. And yet, if we're honest, deep down, we're all in a battle. We are all fighting something all the time. Nagging grief, persistent pain, simmering frustration, quiet hopelessness, How many of us are secretly running right now? And in doing so, are missing the whisper from God that is in the storm. Running to self-sufficiency, running to self-reliance, running to self-satisfaction, or harboring these things just in case we need to run. God's love is relentless. Though we are prone to wonder and we are prone to run, God has called us to a life of fullness. God has given you an identity like he gave Jonah. The word of the Lord has come to Jonah, the son of Amittai. God has given you an identity. He calls you son or daughter. He says there is a purpose for your life. There is a reason you are on this earth. God has given you the role of ambassador in the kingdom, representative of the king, piercing light in the darkness. Doer of the gospel in deed and, if necessary, in word. So as we start Jonah and we look at this picture of the running prophet, let us commit that if we should run, we would run back to God. That we would run to grace and to goodness, that we would run to healing and to wholeness. We would run to an eternity secured in the presence of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus that if we've been running from him, that we would turn and run back the other direction. We would identify what we're running to and realize that it will never satisfy us. That we will catch the thing we're chasing, and once we catch it, we will realize there's always something left to catch. There's always another rung on the ladder. There's always another piece of significance. There's always another better, greater, more. And the only lane we can run where we don't find that, the only place we can go where we don't find insignificance and insecurity, and unfulfillment is in Christ. Because in Christ alone is their perfection, in Christ alone is their fullness, in Christ alone is their healing. And so when we run to anything less, we will perpetually feel unsatisfied. And so the call today as we watch this running prophet is to see ourselves in the picture, to see ourselves in the mirror, and to run back to a God who would do nothing less than send his very best on our behalf. A God who is so relentless that he would not spare his only son for us. That's the kind of God we serve. And so today we stop, we turn, and we run back. Let's pray. Lord, you are relentless. Every page of your scripture paints you that way. Every revelation of your character, every word on the page is you're not a quitting God, 
You're not a God who gives up on us. You're not a God who uh, looks down on wayward children and writes us off. Father, in our times of darkest need, you are there. In our times of greatest celebration, you are there. Father, when we find ourselves taking any boat to anywhere but you, God, you're there. So, Father, as we consider that, my prayer is that each of us would have the courage to look at our own lives and ask the question, where do we run? What ship do we keep in the harbor just in case? What ship are we on right now sailing the opposite direction of the life you've called us to? What thing is it that we need to smash, that we need to burn, that we need to uh, undo in order to be who you've called us to be, in order to be your sons and your daughters, in order to be your ambassadors, your children? And yet, Father, I'm reminded our identity never changes. Once we are yours, we're yours. A child of God, even if he is wayward, is still a child. And so, Father, call us home. Where we're far from you, call us home. For those close to you, embrace and affirm. Father, let us celebrate good seasons. God, ultimately what we desire is the fullness that comes from knowing you, the fullness that comes from being in your will, the fullness that comes with living the life that you've already set up for us. So, Father, fill our hearts with a determined, passionate pursuit of that life. Show us the beauty of that life, the beauty of the calling you've put upon us. And then find us living our days, chasing that beauty and leaving everything else in its wake. Father, thank you for Jesus, for his sacrifice on our behalf. We pray in his beautiful and his saving name. Amen. stand with us. I'd like to invite you during these next three songs to come on either side of the stage here and uh, take a moment to take communion. If you're a believer in Christ, this is just a time where we continue to worship together. I encourage you today as you take the bread and you dip it in the cup to ask yourself this question, to ask God to speak to you as you consider the idea you know, what storm in my life have I been calling a storm maybe this week maybe this year, maybe your whole life there's a storm and you've been calling it a storm and it's really an invitation